The true Christian faith is more powerful than any other religion. Why? Because the true Christian faith doesn't dangle the forgiveness and heaven that it offers before the sinner like some kind of bait. The true God gives forgiveness to the sinner, completely free of charge. The Bible says the Son of God was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. In other words, he died because of our sins to take them away, and he was raised because he did it. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, from John 1. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, from Isaiah 53. And all things, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, by his blood. From Romans 3. You see, the true God doesn't dangle forgiveness in front of us like bait. He guarantees forgiveness in His Son. By faith in Christ, forgiveness and heaven belong to the sinner. That isn't the case if you're a Muslim. Those who belong to the Muslim faith have no guarantee that Allah forgives them. In fact, the Quran says that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. They thought he did, but he didn't really die. The Quran says that he certainly wasn't the Son of God. The Muslim faith offers this. It says, follow the five pillars. Observe Ramadan, pray, fast, give to the poor, and so on. And hope that on the day that you stand before Allah, he will look on you with favor. There is no sure forgiveness in the Muslim faith. If you belong to the Hindu faith or the Buddhist faith, you also have no guarantee of heaven. Maybe if you work hard enough, you'll be able to be enlightened and work your way up the ladder through reincarnation after many, many, many years, perhaps you will melt away into the universe. But there is no guarantee. Maybe you won't. In the Hindu faith, in the Buddhist faith, there is no savior, no guarantee of heaven. And in countless other religions, there is no certainty only a finger that points and says, do these things, and maybe you'll make it. Perhaps. But that isn't the way the God of the Bible speaks. No, the true God points to his son and his cross, and he says, he did what you could never do. He lived without sin gave himself for people who did not deserve it one bit. Stand with him, and you will stand forever. 
God doesn't call his followers hopefuls or the candidates or those who might make it. All who trust in Jesus for forgiveness, God calls his own children, his holy ones, saints, right now, not later on after some council has declared you've done enough good things to be a saint. Listen to the words that Paul says to his fellow Christians in Ephesians 5, 9. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, first, God saves the sinner, connects the sinner to himself through faith in Christ. And then he changes us from the inside out. He causes us to walk as children of light instead of how we used to walk as children of darkness. The Christian faith starts with Christ. And then the Christian faith inside us grows as our admiration of him grows. Today we're going to study Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 20, and we're going to see that our admiration of Christ leads to two things. First, it leads to deliberate choices in life that match up with God's will. Secondly, our admiration for our Savior causes us to build our fellow Christians up by joining together with them to worship God. We first read from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18. Pay careful attention, then, how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. I'm going to pause there for now and tell you a little story. I think it'll help us to, to imagine, under, understand what Paul is telling us here. I once went, once went on a camping trip in British Columbia, and on that trip we did some canoeing. At one particular bend of the river, the ratings of rapids went from class two to class three, and then back down to class two. And it was just in that class three section for just a little sliver. But we got to see what class three rapids really means. We were there on the bank of the river, and a canoe came around uh, the bend there with two guys in it, and they were paddling really fast. And as they swept around that corner into the class three section, their canoe swept sideways completely, and it slammed into a rock that was set right in the middle of the, the most roiling part of the current. The two guys were thrown out of the canoe. Thankfully, they weren't injured seriously. And I happened to be close enough, so I uh, got out in the water. It wasn't uh, really fast right where I was. I could grab out and get that canoe and kind of pull it. It was full of water and kind of try to get some of it onto the shore. 
And then when they finally came over and they thanked me and they, they emptied the canoe out of water and they started banging on it. It was made of aluminum. And after they banged for a little while, they put it back on the water and they got in it and they started paddling down the river again. I remember still as it turned into the current, I could see daylight through the dent that was still in the canoe. This was not a wise way to go down the river. If you're going to go through class three rapids, you should know what you're doing. How to avoid a boulder in a bad section if you go to the left or the right. How to avoid different obstacles, how to set yourself up for waterfalls and other dangers. You need to be careful and have some training if you're going to go through a river like that. If you don't read a book or take a class or at least have a knowledgeable friend who's going to give you some tips, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And they could have died. It was a violent part of the river. And I suppose it goes without saying that if you're going to paddle a canoe through class three rapids, you probably shouldn't be drunk while you're doing it. So let's hear that section from Ephesians again with some interpretive reading. Pay careful attention then how you paddle, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil and therefore dangerous. So don't be foolish, but understand the right way to do this. And don't get drunk with wine, then you certainly won't be careful and wise. But be filled with the Spirit as you journey down the river of life. Paul tells his fellow Christians in this section, now, now that you know your Savior, it's time to start living differently. It's time to start living a deliberate life under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you just paddle wherever your whim takes you in life, you're going to get yourself in trouble, and you may even lose your faith. There are many, many enemies of a deliberate and godly life. Sometimes we become more concerned with what the people around us think than we are concerned with what God thinks. And then how are you going to make decisions that are deliberate and God-pleasing then? We warn our children about peer pressure for this reason, right? But adults fall to it all the same. Sometimes living a deliberate, godly life is sabotaged by the rush and busyness of life. We like the speed that technology brings, but with a fast life, with everything go, 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 sometimes our decisions are made before we have really thought it through. Sometimes our decisions have been made before we properly prayed about it. Living a deliberate life guided by the Holy Spirit becomes impossible if we're disconnected from God's word, if we're not hearing his voice, 
then other voices will begin to mold the choices that we make. That's just the truth of it. How do we overcome peer pressure and busyness and disconnecting from God's word? We stop regularly. We take time out. We don't multitask God, but we set aside time for him. And we prioritize that above other things. We take time to read about how he has interacted with other people in the past, to read about the promises that he has made and kept. We take time to read about how he has solved problems and rescued people and never abandoned those who called on him. In God's word, we find examples to follow, good examples, and we find bad examples to avoid, to be warned by. In the Old Testament, God told the Israelite people that they should take Saturday off, that they should rest on that day, no working, and they should worship him on that day. Now, in the New Testament, God doesn't tell us that we have to do that on Saturday. But I think we can still learn from that Old Testament law, can't we? We can learn that God says that we should take some time off, that we need to rest, that we need to be in his word regularly. Not just when we happen to trip over it or when we get into a crisis. Corey Tenboom once said, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. And then busyness leads to stress. And with stress comes that desire for reprieve, to step away, to numb out. And then all too easily, drug or alcohol abuse can creep in. And if you're drunk or high, you're not going to make decisions that honor your Savior. Instead, you're going to say things you shouldn't, do things you shouldn't, put yourself or others at risk, make decisions that dishonor your God rather than honor Him. Ultimately, the antidote to all of these enemies of a deliberate and spirit-led life is Christ. He's the only one who can take these sins away when we bring them to him. He's the only one who suffered hell for each of us and for all our sins. When we confess our sins to God, we find forgiveness poured out on us because of Jesus. When we read about his earthly life, we find a savior and an example to follow. When we see how he rose from the dead, we see a power that changes us because we know that we are connected to him. One day we will rise also, for that is his promise. I'm going to tell you another story. A number of years ago, I... I heard a story about a man who got involved with Habitat for Humanity. It's a charity organization that builds houses for the homeless. 
this particular man contributed quite a bit. And so he got invited to a banquet, a fundraiser. And he got seated next to an actor uh, named Brad Pitt. Now it was kind of funny because this guy who got seated next to Brad Pitt didn't know who Brad Pitt was because he had, didn't really go to movies, didn't watch TV. He did other things. Brad Pitt, for his part, he, he was involved with Habitat for Humanity and would actually go into houses sometimes and help to build, actually swinging a hammer. Anyway, the man who got seated next to Brad Pitt didn't know who he, know he was, and so he turned to him at some point, and he says, so you're an actor. Pitt says, yep. And he says, on Broadway? Brad says, no, I do movies. Just ask your kids or your grandkids if they've ever seen a movie with Brad Pitt, they probably have. It's probably refreshing not to be recognized once in a while if you're a big movie star, right? Now imagine, imagine instead of getting seated at the banquet, you know, this fundraiser, imagine if they had gotten sent to a house together. Imagine that you were going to build in a house for Habitat for Humanity and you showed up to the work day and there on your team is Brad Pitt. But he doesn't have a hammer. Oh, I, I didn't bring one. I, I, don't, I don't have any tools to work with here. What would you do? You'd get Brad Pitt a hammer, right? Because he's Brad Pitt. You'd give him yours, or you'd have someone go buy him one. You would get on things right away. Brad Pitt needs a hammer. we got to get a hammer for him. Takeaway is this. The more you admire a person, the more willing you are to serve them. Our service to Christ is a function of our admiration of him. And when we find that our service to him isn't what we think it should be, what we need to do is we need to go back and sit at his feet again. We need to go back and hear about what that life was all about, how he lived it, why he died, and why he was raised from the dead. And when our admiration for Christ is properly restored, then new service to him will spring from that admiration. In the second half of our sermon reading, the Apostle Paul says that if we're going to be sitting at Christ's feet, we should definitely do that together sometimes. We read from Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
singing and making music with your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in this section is about being together with our fellow Christians in worship. Paul says that we should speak to one another. And how? In songs. In different kinds of songs. Old ones, new ones, different ones. You can't do this alone. To speak to one another in song, we have to be together. Paul says that if we're singing to each other, we should also be singing to the Lord from the heart. And when we do this, we're building up the faith of our fellow Christians. Out in the world, we get the opposite, don't we? Most of the songs out there aren't about doing God's will. Most of the songs out in the world aren't about what Christ has done for us. Just flip on the radio, you can see that. Out in the world, people mock God, or at least hesitate to talk about him. But in church, we praise him together. We lift up our voices together about his goodness and his mercy, his forgiveness and his love, his power and his justice. And when we sing together, we are counteracting the voice of the world because we're singing with the voice of God. I mean, when we open up the hymnal, where do these hymns come from? Where do these lines and these ideas come from? They better be coming from God's word. And when they're from his word, this is God's voice that we are singing to one another. Paul says that when we gather together like this, we should always thank God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that for just a moment. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ means because of who he is and what he does. Why do we cry out in thankfulness to God? Because of his son, ultimately. Because he is the eternal son of God, and yet he became a human son as well. We cry out to God in thankfulness because that human son took our sins on himself and suffered hell to take them away. We cry out in thankfulness to God because he was raised from the dead, because he had finished his mission. And therefore, we know our sins stand forgiven. When Paul says, give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is what he's talking about. Give thanks to God the Father for all things because of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. Because you know him, the true Jesus, and you admire him. Like it says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The true Christian faith 
is more powerful than any other religion. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. And so make deliberate choices in your life that keep you close to him. Make deliberate choices that build up your fellow Christians and keep them close to him. Because in him is where we find forgiveness and peace and wisdom. Wisdom for the living of this world, living of this life, and wisdom for when we leave this world as well. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.